Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Hey, good evening, everyone. Welcome along to Gateway this evening. If you're visiting with us, we extend to you a really, really warm welcome. If you're regular, so thrilled that you're back with us. Um, If you are regular, you know that we're in the middle of a series on David, and we've called it From Shepherd to King. And we're using David as a kind of a prototype to uh, look at how God fashions a man or woman of God. To do that, there's probably lots of ways we could have approached David's life, but um, what we've done is divided David's life into five sections. Um, If only life was that easy, but, you know, they kind of blur to be truthful. But we've divided it into five sections based on the major geographical locations of David's life. So we've got Bethlehem, Gibeah, Adullam, Hebron, and Zion. Those are five places that were particularly important. They were kind of like boundary markers in David's life, and we'll see why as we go, um, because we're considering one each week. uh, I started the series speaking about Bethlehem. Uh, Bethlehem is David when he's unknown. David in the back paddocks of um, his hometown, where uh, he learns to be faithful in the obscure and unseen places. And I talked about how God uses those kind of obscure places. We talked about solitude, obscurity, monotony, and, rea- and reality as tools in the um, tool bag of God to, to shape a man or a woman of God. Last week, Chris spoke about David's life at Gibeah. Now, Gibeah was where Saul's court was, and that was where David experienced early success. He killed Goliath. He was invited to Saul's court. He became court musician and very quickly kind of uh, Saul's right-hand man, leader of uh, a number of, uh, um, of, of the army, and he experienced significant success early on. You know, the book of Proverbs says in the message translation, 27 verse 21, the purity of human hearts is tested by giving them a little fame. And at this point in time, David's life is tested by the fame that he initially experiences. And Chris explained how at Gibeah, God used that success, David's commitment to servanthood, and Saul's insecurity as tools that fashion David's life. Tonight I want to look at the third place, and it's the cave of Adullam. Let me give you a little bit of background to how David gets to this geographic location. As Chris mentioned last week, David's initial quite spectacular success created significant relational tensions with King Saul. At first, Saul absolutely loved David, but when he heard the maidens singing about David's success, and in his distorted view, minimizing his own, he became uh, increasingly jealous. Driven by his insecurities, he became paranoid and suspicious of David. So 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 7 says, They credit David with tens of thousands, this is Saul speaking, and me with only thousands. Next they'll be making him their king. So from that time on, King Saul kept a jealous watch on David. You know, up until this point, David's graph was really going up and to the right. Saul's growing paranoia, driven by his deep insecurities, changed his fortunes dramatically. So 1 Samuel chapter 18 reads like this in the Living Bible, verses 9 through 12. From that time on, King Saul kept a jealous watch on David. The very next day, in fact, a tormenting spirit from God overwhelmed Saul and he began to rave like a madman. 
David began to soothe him by playing the harp as he did whenever this happened, but Saul, who was fiddling with his spear, suddenly hurled it at David, intending to pin him to the wall. But David jumped aside and escaped. This happened another time too, for Saul was afraid of him and jealous because the Lord had left him and was now with David. What happened as a spontaneous act of jealous rage transmogrifies into a settled, deliberate policy of state, and as a result, David is forced to flee for his life. Now, David goes to a number of places before he ends up at Adullam. First of all, he flees to Samuel at a place called Nioth. Saul, probably knowing where David would go, quickly worked out that he'd head to Samuel, so he sought him there. From there, he flees to Nob to see and obtain counsel from the priest Elimelech. If you know the story, that turned out very badly. One of Saul's servants, a man by the name of Doeg, was at Nob and saw David and Elimelech, the priest, interacting. He goes back and reports to Saul what he'd seen, and the end result is that Saul sends Doeg back to wreak havoc among the priests. 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 18 through 20 says, Doeg turned on the priests, killed them. 85 priests in all, all wearing their priestly robes. Then he went to Nob, the city of the priests, and killed the priests' families, men, women, children, and babies, and also all the oxen, donkeys, and sheep. Only Abiathar, one of the sons of Elimelech, escaped and fled to David. Things are going downhill fast. So from Nob, David flees to Gath. Now you have to wonder what David was thinking at this time or whether he was thinking because Gath is Goliath's hometown. Goliath of Gath, you might remember how the scripture describes him. And not only does he go to Gath, Goliath's hometown, but he goes there carrying Goliath's sword. When he goes to Elimelech, uh, the priest, the priest says to him, you've been sent on an assignment, you haven't even got a weapon. And David goes, well, I had to leave so quickly that I didn't have one. You wouldn't have one lying around by any chance. Elimelech says, well, actually, we've got Goliath's sword. David said, that'll do. So he takes Goliath's sword and goes to Goliath's hometown. Um, It strikes me that that wasn't probably his best decision. He gets there, he's immediately suspected, as you would imagine, by the inhabitants of Gath, and he has to feign madness to extricate himself from what potentially could have been a disastrous situation. So 1 Samuel 21 verses 12 through 15 says, David heard the comments and was afraid of what King Asius might do to him, so he pretended to be insane. He scratched on the doors and he let his spittle flow down his beard until finally King Asius says to his men, must you bring me a madman? We already have enough of them around here. Should such a fellow be my guest? And David manages to escape. So this is the kind of circuitous journey that David takes to finally end up at Adullam, the cave of Adullam, because 1 Samuel 22 verse 1 and 2 says, so David left Gath, escaped to the cave of Adullam, where his brothers and other relatives soon joined him. Then others began coming, those who were in any kind of trouble, such as being in debt or merely discontented, until David was the leader of about 400 men. You can get some real insight into how David was feeling, what he was thinking, how he was even acting during this time, during this route as he gets to Gath, by examining some of the historical psalms that he wrote. 
when, when we read the Psalms, very often we skip over the introductory kind of statement at the top of the Psalm and just get straight into it. But these little remarks at the top of them are called superscriptions. And what they do is they often give you the person that wrote the psalm, and sometimes they'll give you uh, what historical event inspired the author to write the psalm. So there's a series of psalms, historical psalms we call them, that are related to this season of David's life, and they're worth going back and reading. So for example, the superscription of Psalm 52 reads, For the director of music, a masculine of David, when Doeg the Edomite had gone to Saul and told him, David has gone to the house of Elimelech. That was what I was telling you about before. That psalm was written about that event as David reflects on it. By the way, the word masquil simply means consider it deeply for the purposes of instruction. So as you're reading that psalm, you need to put it in that context. This, is, this, is, this belongs to that. The superscription for Psalm 54 reads, For the director of music with stringed instrument, a masculine of David, when the Ziphites had gone to Saul and said, Is not David hiding among us? Now I didn't, I didn't talk about that, but one other thing that David does is he's fleeing from Saul as he goes to Ziph, and he hopes that they might look after him, but they go immediately to tell Saul, He's there. So he feels incredibly betrayed, and Psalm 54 is a comment on that season. Psalm 57 begins, For the director of music to the tune of Do Not Destroy, David Amitkam, when he fled from Saul into the cave. We're talking about Adullam here. By the way, Amitkam simply means something engraved and therefore very important. Psalm 63, A psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. Psalm 142, a masculine of David when he was in the cave, a prayer. So those historical psalms give you a real insight as you read through them into how David is processing this season of uh, profound difficulty that he's facing. When I was reading these, uh, Psalm 63, the inscription, the superscription of Psalm 63 struck me because it says, David, when he was in the desert of Judah, and, and I... And I raised an immediate question for me. I thought, a desert in Judah? What happened to the promised land that was supposed to be flowing with milk and honey? What happened to the fertile soils, the rich crops, the copious amounts of fruit and wine that the promised land was supposed to have? I, I never knew there was a desert in Judah. You know, when God promised Israel this land, he described it and said, instead, of the, instead the land you are crossing into across the Jordan to occupy, it's one of hills and valleys, a land that drinks in water from the rains, a land that the Lord your God looks after and is constantly attentive to it from the beginning to the end of the year. That sounds like a very blessed land to me, and yet here we are reading about David in the deserts of Judah. And I thought, how could there possibly be a desert in a promised land? As I contemplated that, I thought, well, you know what, it's easy to read the Scripture sometime and see one aspect, and it's only one aspect of a much larger picture. Sometimes we focus on promises, but we fail to see challenges that accompany those promises. I think that's exactly what happens to people when they go into things like, you know, the prosperity doctrine. It emphasizes promises at the expense of a much larger and much more balanced picture, and what you end up with is a distortion. You know, sometimes I think people imagine that if they're real Christians, then life will be a procession of milk and honey experiences. But that's, that's not what the gospel actually 
presents us with, in spite of the fact that sometimes we hear people say, well, come to Jesus and your problems will be solved. Your personal, relational, economic graph will be on the rise. Seriously, folks, if you've followed Jesus for much longer than five minutes, you'll know that that's not the whole picture. There are deserts in Judah. Peter says this, my dear friends, don't be surprised at the deserts in Judah. He doesn't quite say that. He says, don't be surprised for the painful test that you're suffering, as though something unusual were happening to you. And in your red letter Bible, Jesus says, in the world you'll have deserts in Judah. Or what he says is, in the world you'll have tribulations. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Friends, when you find yourself in a difficult season, when you find yourself in a desert time, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're out of the will of God. God has always used the desert experience to fashion his chosen saints. He does to David. He did to Moses. He did to Elijah. He did to the Apostle Paul. He uses the desert to shape people, to make them the man or woman of God that they're supposed to be. The desert isn't necessarily a place of abandonment or punishment. It's often actually God's tutorial for you. In these historical psalms, as I said, we can get an insight into how David is responding to his literal and perhaps to our metaphorical desert that he finds himself in. One of the psalms I referenced is Psalm 142. Let me read it to you. It says, a contemplation of David, a prayer when he was in the cave. I cry out to the Lord with my voice. With my voice to the Lord, I make my supplication. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then you knew my path, and the way in which I walk, they have secretly set a snare for me. Look on my right hand and see, for there is no one who acknowledges me. Refuges fail me, no one cares for my soul. I cried out to you, O Lord, I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise your name. The righteous shall surround me, for you shall deal bountifully with me. In this desert experience, when he finds himself in the cave, David responds with prayer. This psalm is entitled, A Prayer When David Was in the Cave. You know, it seems like the obvious thing to do. When you hit difficult waters, when you get into trouble, you set yourself to pray. But in actual fact, that's not what a lot of people do. A lot of people don't turn in prayer to God. James 5.13 says, Is any one of you suffering? Let him pray. First of all, let him pray. David was complaining, but he took his complaint to the right source. He complained to God and not simply about God. It's fine to have some questions. It's fine to have some doubts. It's fine to have some complaints. It's what you do with them and to whom you take them that makes the, cru that makes the, the, the difference. It's the crucial issue. David took his complaints, took his difficulties, and began to pray about them. You know, Charles Spurgeon once said, he who's learned to pray has been taught the most useful of the arts and sciences. Psalm 20 says, when you're in trouble, look to the Lord. He'll send help from the sanctuary. He sends help from the sanctuary when we pray. Some of us don't go to the sanctuary when we're in trouble. Some of us go to the library. We want to find out information. Some of us go to the pantry. We, 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 we turn to false comfort. Some of us, we turn in all kinds of different directions. 
Not always to the sanctuary. Here it says David's in trouble. He doesn't go library, pantry, or anything else. He goes straight to the sanctuary and starts to cry out. By the way, Charles uh, Spurgeon also said, if David had prayed as much in the palace as he did in the cave, he might never have fallen into the act that brought such misery on his later days. Insightful. Don't just pray in trouble. Pray when things are going well as well. I'm not going to take time to really go into this, but Psalm 142 breaks neatly into two portions. Verses 1 through 4, we have David's position, his trouble, his condition, his complaint. In the remaining verses, 5 to 9, we have his petition, his trust, his confidence, his consolation. The gloom of the cave is over the first part of the psalm, and yet in the second part of the psalm, it's as if he is at least standing at the cave's mouth and looking beyond it. He outlines the situation to the Lord, not that the Lord may see it, but hopefully that he may see the Lord in it. In verse 4, you get a sense of his incredible abandonment. I looked on my right hand. See, there's no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. Ever felt like that? That nobody gives a rip? That's how David's feeling. There's nobody there. In the eastern setting, your friends, your advocates stood on your right hand. So he's not talking about enemies. He's now looking for friends, and there isn't anybody there. In a feast, the guest of honor always sat at the host's right hand. David looks to his right hand. There's no one there. Though he feels completely abandoned by friends and foe alike, though he's in, in incredible confusion, at least in prayer, he knows that God hasn't abandoned him. That's why he's turned in prayer. And Psalm 16 verse 8 says, I constantly trust in the Lord because he is at my right hand and I will not be upended. Though everybody else has gone, I know you haven't. You know, this is probably, at least at this point at least, David's lowest, lowest point in his life. He's lost his wife, Michael. He's lost his home. He's lost his job, his position at Saul's court. He's been abandoned, it feels like at least anyway, by his best friend, Jonathan. He's probably lost his self-respect after his madness performance at Gath. And he's in danger of losing his future and his hopes and in dreams. But he's holding on to God in prayer. He hasn't let go yet. And it's not, like this was a, it's not like this was a quick season. You know, this, this season was probably between seven and nine years in duration. He didn't get out of this situation in a couple of weeks or a couple of months. The desert season, this time of adversity, tested David's character as nothing else does. It's true for us too. Mike Bickle says, if you can't find God in adversity, you won't find him in prosperity. If criticism affects you in the hard times, then praise will corrupt you in the good ones. You know what? If I were to develop a manual for training a potential king, I suspect it would have chapters on things like international diplomacy, court etiquette and procedures, maybe learning how to lead military men, and in David's case, at least um, a chapter on or some lessons in ballroom dancing, since David never seemed to manage... Uh, and do well on that subject, at least according to his wife, Michael, if you know the story. I very much doubt, however, if it ha I would have chosen a chapter on uh, entitled Lessons to be Learned in an Inhospitable Wilderness. However, in God's training manual, there are lessons in inhospitable wildernesses to be learned. That is the non-negotiable, definitive pattern 
in the making of a man and woman of God. I'm sorry, you won't avoid it. Charles Swindoll puts it bluntly. He says, everybody, at least everybody who has anything to do with God, spends time in the wilderness. So if you're feeling a little abandoned, if you're feeling as if you're in the deserts of Judah, then can I encourage you that everybody goes there. And if you are going to be a man or woman of God, God will take you there. Nancy Newhall observes wildernesses. The wilderness holds answers to questions that we've not even learnt to ask. So true. So true. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we read in Luke chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned to the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. The word led there in the Greek is a very strong word. It's not just, ah, come on, it's, it's to drive, or the Living Bible translates it to urge. It seems that even for Jesus, and especially for you and me, the wilderness is very rarely, if ever, freely chosen. We find ourselves driven there by the Spirit, urged there by the Holy Spirit. Now that urging might take the form of circumstances that are beyond uh, our control. Perhaps the actions of an unreasonable authority figure, a parent, a boss, perhaps a pastor. Perhaps by virtue of sickness or some relational back breakdown, a redundancy or severe financial constraints. Whatever, we find ourselves urged into the wilderness. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but I know me. And I know that if it's at all possible, I will shun the discomfort and the pain of the wilderness and that I much prefer a smooth, comfortable, manageable life. To my shame, if uh, I, I would never... I'm going to, but I, normally I wouldn't articulate this. Uh, I, I would articulate something different. But the reality deep down is that when push comes to shove, I want comfort more than I want character. And God is far more interested in our character than he is in our comfort. He loves us far too much and he's far too good of a parent to allow us to come into the inheritance that he has for us too quickly or without preparation. He loves you too much to let you live with and in an unbroken life of success. He knows what that does to us. And he's too good of a parent to allow that to happen to you. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 21 says, An inheritance may, may be hastily gotten at the beginning, but the end thereof shall not be blessed. You know, I, I know secular parents who are really wise. They've made a lot of money, and they have determined that they will not pass that money on to their children, lest it corrupt them. I have a friend who's a, actually a Christian. He's a multi, multi-millionaire, and he says, My kids will get nothing. Having said that, he said, I might help them into their first house, but after that, it's curtains. They are not getting a penny of what I have. I will give it all away. I will not allow that to corrupt them. And there's wisdom there. Some of us want to come into our inheritance, and we want it quickly. We want it at last Thursday by 10, if at all possible. King Saul came into his inheritance really quickly without a great deal of preparation, and we see how that turned out. The deep insecurities that haunted his soul were never rooted out in the wilderness. He didn't even have the questions. He'd never been into the wilderness. He didn't even have the questions, let alone the answers. And when the inheritance rested on his shoulders, it simply destroyed him, and he was a disaster. 
Albert Einstein said, premature responsibility breeds superficiality. And history bears mute testimony to the fact that a person's gift can take them to a place where their character cannot sustain them. We see it in all kinds of fields, from politicians to, to entertainers to sports people, who suddenly, by virtue of charisma and giftings, find themselves in a place that they're not prepared to live in, and their character lets them down. You see it every day. The purpose of the wilderness is that God is enabled to develop in you the character that you need to stand successfully in the fulfillment of your inheritance. And David was being developed by the wilderness so that when he came to the throne, there was sufficient ballast, if I can use that as a metaphor, deep in the bow of his soul that enabled him to survive the storms that inevitably came his way as he led the nation. And you know the story. He nearly got tipped over even in spite of the preparation. But the deep ballast in his soul pulled him back up again. Where Saul went over, there was no ballast to pull him back. David nearly went under, but the ballast of deep character formed in the wilderness pulled him back. You know, while he's in the wilderness, David isn't thinking grand thoughts about being king. He's concentrating on breathing. His dreams and his hopes are pretty much dead. And there was a time when he said, this is not going to end well. Saul is going to kill me. He really, he really thought it was all over. He must have wondered about the words that Samuel gave him and the anointing that he poured on him and said, you're going to be the next king of Israel. There were times when he thought, fat chance. No, I'm, not, I'm not even going to get out of this cave. Dan Allender wisely comments, a leader's dream must die if a deep soul is to be born. Man, that's worth meditating on. A leader's dream must die if a deep soul is to be born. Idealism may get you into the fray, but it is the loss of all that we cherish that begins to form in us a heart capable of leading others reluctantly and humbly. That's gold. Okay? That's gold, and that's what God is doing in the wilderness. He's creating a deep soul. By the way, I'm not suggesting that the wilderness has some inherent quality in it that will make you a better person. Trouble and testing doesn't necessarily make you noble, wise, or strong. It has in and of itself no transforming power. It is neutral and passive. It's all about response. It's all about your response to the trouble and testing that comes your way. The same sun that hardens the clay melts the wax. Same sun, different responses. The Russians have a proverb and they say the same hammer that shatters the glass forges the steel. It's how you respond to those seasons when you're in the wilderness of Judea. And in the wilderness of Judea, we see David. In Psalm 57, a prayer in the cave, it says, we see David learning to pray. Verse 2 of that psalm, I cry out to God most high, to God who vindicates me. I take my complaint to him. He learned to trust. Psalm 57, verse 1, I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until a disaster has passed. He learned to worship. Not in good times, not in the easy places, but in the cave, 
David worships. Psalm 57, I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over the earth. This isn't David in the palace. This is David in the cave, and this is his prayer. He learns to pray. He learns to trust. He learns to worship, and he learns to lead. 1 Samuel 22, verse 2. When his brothers and others associated with his family heard where he was, they came down and joined him. Not only that, but all who were down on their luck came around. Losers and vagrants and misfits of all sorts, and David became their leader. There was about 400 in all. David fashioned this bunch of misfits, miscreants, and malcontents into what would later be his famous mighty men. He, he learned to lead. Friends, when you find yourself in a difficult place, when you find yourself in the deserts of Judah in the cave of Adullam, first of all, learn to pray. Go to God in prayer. Don't complain about God. Complain to God. Go to the right person. Learn to trust him. He knows about your situation. You, you don't have to invite him in in a sense so that he can see it. What you need to see is him in it. So learn to trust him. Don't try and extricate yourself from the situation by your own nous and skills. And this is a hard one, because we want out. You know, I, I don't know about you, but when I'm in hard times, mostly I'm concentrating on how do I stop this? How do I end this? Rather than saying, God, what are you trying to say to me in it? I remember a guy many, many years ago saying, don't try and get out of the fix that God's put you into. If God has fixed a fix and you try and unfix the fix that he's fixed you with, then he'll simply fix another fix to fix you. He does. You don't escape God's tests. You simply reset them. And because he cares so much about you, because he loves you so much, he, he will at times fix you. In those seasons, don't try and get out by your own abilities. Psalm, oh sorry, Isaiah chapter 50, it says this, Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? This isn't talking about somebody in rebellion. By the way, you can go into the desert through your rebellion. Psalm 68 says the rebellious dwell in a dry place. I'm not even looking at sometimes you can go into a dry place because of your own foolishness. I'm simply saying that even, in, even for those who love the Lord, who obey the voice of his servant, who fear the Lord, he will urge you at times into the wilderness. You say, Don, how shall we know the difference? Well, ask him. Okay, ask him. Then it says, to that person, let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. That's what David was saying. Lord, in this place I trust you. Then it says, look, all of you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourself with sparks, walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks that you've kindled, this you shall have of my hand, you shall lie down in torment. You think of the people who tried to get themselves out of the fix that God fixed them with. Abraham, who says, I've got to help God in this problem that we have with Sarah's barrenness. We will sort it. Man, he had to walk in the light of that fire and it burned him badly. Whenever you see people trying to get God out of trouble or themselves out of trouble to help God along in the process, it, it always turns out badly. We don't learn the lessons that God wants us to learn. 
I remember hearing a story about a little boy who had a little chrysalis and he was waiting with anticipation for the butterfly to come out and the day Julie arrived and the, the chrysalis started to peel back and the butterfly began to push itself out but it took longer than the boy thought it should. And as he watched the butterfly struggling, he thought, I can help this. He went and got his mother's tweezers and nail scissors, came back and with great delicacy cut the chrysalis and opened it up and freed the butterfly from what he presumed was its prison. The problem was, and he didn't know this, but the butterfly, in order to be able to push its wings out to its full extent and get the fluids flowing out into the, in the, uh, you know, the extremities of its wings, needed that struggle. He robbed the butterfly of its potential for flight in attempting to get it out an easy way. And sometimes when we try and extricate ourselves from the situations that God's put us into, we fail to realize we need that to be what we're supposed to be. Friends, when you're in trouble, like David, learn the art of worship even when it's hard. Do what's in front of you, as David did. He started to lead this bunch of misfits, miscreants, and malcontents. He started with what was in front of him. He began by leading sheep. Now he's got a bunch of recalcitrant sheep, and he leads them. Ultimately, he gets to where he's leading the tribe of Judah, and finally, he leads the nation. He learns to lead because that's what he's called to be. If you know the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, you know that Joseph had an incredible gift of administration. And you see it early in David's life. You see it in his family. He uh, comes to his father with a bad report about his brothers and the way that they're dealing with the business. Now, whether he was wise in doing that or not is a moot point. The thing is, this kid has a gift of administration. He watches his brothers doing his father's business and says, nah, it can be done better than that. So he gets betrayed, he ends up in Egypt, he goes to Potiphar's house, what does he do? He administrates. And finally, Potiphar recognizes his gift and the whole house is his. From there, by virtue of Potiphar's wife, he ends up in prison. What does he do in prison? He administrates it. And finally, he's running the whole prison. From there, he's lifted to the throne of Pharaoh and what does he do? He administrates now listen, he was administrating in his father's household. Yes, the extent and the largeness of the administration is different, but the spirit of servanthood, the gift that he has is exactly the same. He simply does what's in front of him, even when it's you know, not as much as he'd hoped for as it was in prison. This didn't look much like the fulfillment of his dream. You might be in a position tonight where you're thinking, this really, as I look around, doesn't look anything like God promised me. Friends, whatever is in front of you, Ecclesiastes says, do it with all your might. Let your gift work in the situation you're in. Don't wait for the circumstances to open up. You know, Ecclesiastes says, if you wait for perfect conditions, you'll never get anything done. The farmer would never sow his seed if he waited for perfect conditions. You do what's in front of you. You know, over the years, I've had people come to me and say, Don, would you open up a situation for me? And if you open it up, man, I'll show you what I'm made of. My stock standard reply is, you show me what you're made of and maybe I'll open something up for you. Somebody once sent a note to a TV station when they were advertising some product and they said, send me the product. If it's any good, I'll send you a check. They sent back and said, send us the check. If it's any good, we'll send you the product. That's how it works. Show what you're made of. You, you might not be 
able to do great things, but I tell you, you can do little things with a spirit of greatness. And that's what David does. He starts to lead this bunch of misfits, and he turns them into his mighty men. Adullam was a place that was God's tutorial. For all the world, you'd look at it and say it's a cave, but I tell you it wasn't a cave, it was a classroom. When you find yourself in a pit, somebody once said, pit is an acrostic for profit and training. When you're in a pit, it may well be God's classroom for you. How you respond, to whom you complain, these become crucial issues. Okay? So David in Adullam, next we'll head to David in Hebron. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.